Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is a podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist and coach, also keynote and TEDx speaker and author of Rejuvenating, the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners to the podcast know, my goal is to always bring you individuals who can enlighten us, who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and have different ways of helping us to become better versions of ourselves every day of our lives so that we can be resilient as we go through the lifespan and be enthusiastic. Now, I don't think we've had a a presenter who's covered quite the area that we are doing. And I know um, that it's something that while most people, most families hope that they don't have to deal with this problem, uh, some obviously do and some obviously will. Um, And I think that it's great that we have Deborah Kasdan here to talk about her family's experience when a family member, in this case, her older sister, suffers a severe and chronic mental illness. Um, Deborah kind of documented this uh, in the book recently published, just a few weeks ago, uh, published in her book, Roll Back the World. A Sister's Memoir. In this book, she delves into the complex dynamics of a family grappling with the impact of serious uh, of a serious mental health disorder afflicting the oldest of four siblings. Her older sister, Rachel, was a budding poet when she was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 23. She then endured 30 years and numerous admissions to psychiatric hospitals before a compassionate social worker finally found a way for her to live on her own with the assistance of a community agency. Now, in Deborah's case, our guest spent 35 years as a writer in the corporate world, and she then moved to writing this deeply personal narrative. I've read it, it's, you know, wonderful. Again, a difficult topic, but a wonderful narrative. Her journey from the tumultuous emotions of grief, shame, and survivor's guilt to catharsis and acceptance are really, really important. Um, According to the National Association of Mental Illness, Uh, There are 14 million adults living with serious mental illness. Programs for them are seriously, woefully underfunded. And with, actually, I was shocked to hear that less than half of those who've been diagnosed are actually receiving services. And some are having real difficulty even with the services. Her book, Roll Back the World, will undoubtedly resonate deeply with countless friends and families 
who are silently dealing with, and sometimes not so silently, but dealing with the consequences of this. And I know that the book will not only resonate with, with us, but also will provide guidance for how to cope with, again, something that we don't plan for, we don't hope for, but sometimes we have to endure. So I am so happy to introduce you to Deborah Kasdan. Deborah, thanks so much for being with us and sharing your knowledge and sharing the insights of your wonderful book with us. I'm glad to be here, Ron. And thank you for that wonderful um, introduction. Uh, so, well, I know, I know we're going to be talking about the book and talking about mental illness quite a bit, but just so I'm sure that we're setting kind of a uh, the groundwork for this, I'd like to talk about you for a few minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about your own non-mental health related journey to getting to where you are growing up and uh, the time in your career and so on? Yeah, okay. So uh, as you said, I worked in uh, writing about business and technology. That was a very corporate career. In a sense, it was kind of the opposite of the type of writing my sister did, which was very creative and expressive. And I think I veered towards that for that reason, because I was kind of afraid of being like my sister. Um, but uh, before I started working, I got married kind of young, again, probably in response to what happened, um, and had a, fan, uh, had a couple kids young and, uh, you know, started working full time, you know, when they were school age. And um, yeah, so I had, I, uh, I've been married 56 years to a wonderful guy who's been a real rock for me. And uh, I'm, I enjoy now four grandchildren. Um, I love swimming and do some yoga and walking and hanging out with the kids and doing some writing. So that's my lifestyle. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, so what motivated you to write this book, which is different than uh, than any other writing, I think, that, that you had previously done. Yeah, very, very different. Um, my sister died in 2003. She was 59 years old. And it was a shock, but uh, people with serious mental illness generally die, lose 20 years of their life. So it was kind of on mark for that um, due to uh, you know, physical causes that are just not seen to not not being attended to because because of their conditions they're overlooked. But she died, and I just had was overcome with this feeling that I had to write write about her. I don't know where it came from. I was interviewed by a woman recently who was also a medium, and she said Rachel just got channeled through me, and I guess there's truth to that. Um, and I just felt I had to um, because it just seemed so unfair what happened to her. And I just, she was so um, marginalized during her life. I just wanted to do something for her to tell her story. So I had that as a mission. 
to do. And I also had a mystery on my hands. Uh, I didn't really understand why she became so so ill and why her condition became chronic. And I just and and we were out of touch for some years due to the circumstances, various circumstances. And I wanted to know, you know, where she was all the time and what was happening to her. So I did a lot of research and I and I wanted to find out more. I interviewed my mother who was still alive. I got all kinds of records, documents from her, her basement. She saved every letter from all four of her children and my father's letters too, when they were apart. So um, got uh, FBI files, I got hospital records. So I didn't actually start writing full bore on it until I retired in 2015. You know, and it took about, it was very, very painful, difficult writing. And, you know, I couldn't sit and, and write for hours a day. So it took me five years to actually complete it. I took writing courses to help me write in a more um, compelling way than I did for business. You know, it wasn't far from writing. It was quite far from what I usually did writing about technology. So I took courses and that helped, but it was, so to get back to your question, it was just that impulse that I had to do it, that I had this mission and I had to find out things because I really wanted to know what happened. And uh, I've got kind of two related questions. One, uh, can you fill us in a little bit about what the structure of your family was growing up? And also, mm -hmm. you said that Rachel was diagnosed at age 23. Um, were there hints before that? Was she, you know, kind of special in certain ways? Or, uh, you know, or was there almost a, a major change of personality when she got it? into yeah. 23 or close to it. Okay, first part. Um, Rachel was born uh, in the middle of World War II. And shortly after, our, our dad went overseas to fight in Italy. So my mother was left with um, her in-laws to, you know, to help care for the baby. And then I, when Rachel was a few years old, he came back, my dad came back, took a while to get back from Italy and they started a family, but there were a lot of troubling things about it because my mom didn't get along with the in-laws. She kind of, you know, I think they felt he married down because she was raised in an orphanage because she was abandoned by her father. So she had her own needs. So, um, and my father had to instantly start a career and he had an instant family and he had these family issues to deal with it. So there was a lot of stress then. Um, I came three and a half years later, I'm the second one. Um, and then my brother, almost two years after me, and then a younger sister, um, five years after my brother, seven years after me. So there was 10 years between Rachel and my younger sister and with two in the middle. So I was the second child. Um, and for, for some time I was the middle child. And when my mom got pregnant with my little sister, the doctor said, well, Debbie won't be a middle child anymore. She won't whine so much. <laughs> um, but then when Rachel became ill, I took on the role of the older child because she wasn't functioning. 
Um, so there was a lot of interesting family dynamics. Now, as to the second part, um, were there any hints of this? I, I addressed the stress when Rachel was first born in the family situation then, and she had a lifelong uh, struggle with my mother, emotional, it was, you know, it was all emotional struggle. Um, they just didn't get along for some reason. Um, and I think it was because of what happened in those early years, a kind of triangle between my mother who was needy and then my sister having a, a, a new a father come into her life all of a sudden. I, I think the, that was a very, the dynamics of that were very difficult. And she always fought with my mother and my father too sometimes when limits were placed on her. So I would say she grew up rather angry, um, but she was, um, you know, she was uh, not, you know, she did, she wasn't delusional. Um, she, she did well in school, although they said she didn't live up to her capability. She was very bright. She loved to read. She was artistic. Um, so I would not say that I expected this to happen. In fact, I was very, very shocked when they committed her. It was a huge blow. Um, so it was a surprise. I thought she was just going to be angry and rebellious. So, but I never expected what happened. And um, as you wrote about it, I mean, I, I think one of the things that is particularly interesting about the the book is, I mean, there are a lot of things that are particularly interesting, but I think you don't have to have uh, a mentally ill member of your family or anything uh, uh, along those lines, friends or so on, uh, because of the interest, not just about dealing with mental illness, but you chose to write about the events that were going on as you were going through this. I remember being pretty young when the, the Cold War was on uh, mm -hmm. and just being aware of uh, some families being uh, labeled as communists or uh, I remember hadn't heard the word fellow travelers in a while, but I saw it in your book. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, you get a real flavor of the times as you go through. And I, I was just wondering, uh, I'm assuming that isn't accidental that, that you decided yeah. to make it more than just a, a book about uh, Rachel's illness. Yeah, exactly. I did decide that. Um, I don't think the, the die, you know, her behavior came about in isolation um, you know, there, yes, there's things that happen in your brain that get kicked off, but I think that's a result of your environment. Um, uh, your own psychology, I talked about her anger towards my mom and, and your environment. And our environment was a little bit unusual. Um, Rachel and I were, well, well, we were all born in the Midwest, um, Rachel and I in Cleveland. And my dad came from a very conservative, well, not very, but just a you know conservative family, first generation, um, uh, you know, and they were um, you know good Americans. They wanted to do everything right, but my dad kind of got radicalized when he went away 
to college. It was during the Spanish Civil War. And uh, there was a lot of tumult kind of equivalent to our Vietnam War in the 60s. You know, um, I think you might compare that. And he got a little bit radicalized and he joined organizations that were um, labeled as communist front organization. He meet, he might've even had a communist card for a couple of years. I'm not, I'm not sure because he didn't continue that, but like the ACLU was considered a communist front organization then. And they um, made donations to certain causes and, and subscribed to certain magazines that the FBI had on their list. So they got labeled as communists. Um, or, or fellow travelers who were people who sympathized with communists and might contribute or might help them out at times. Um, so the FBI ended up um, surveilling my parents and we moved around a lot, partly because of my father's uh, feel that there weren't a lot of jobs in Jewish centers where he lived, where, where he worked. But um, I think also there was pressures uh, because of his political alliances to move, you know, he couldn't move up. So um, every whenever we moved, the FBI would come to let us let them know that they knew where they were and maybe they wanted to talk to them and tell them, give them names, but my parents would never give names, would never talk to them. And they told us not to give, give we never had to, don't ever talk to the FBI. And, and, I, and I write about in the book one time, we, when Khrushchev was addressing the UN, we were watching it on TV and we hear a knock on the door. And I guess it was coincidental to the UN meeting, but, um, and there were two men in, at the door and they were FBI. And my brother, my mom talked to them in the hall. I think my dad was working. She sent them away, um, remind us never to talk to anybody. Um, my brother and I thought it was a big joke you know, dum, da, dum, 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 you know, the dragnet, dragnet theme. Um, but I think Rachel being older had a little more awareness of the, um, you know, uh, that it was it, it's somewhat dangerous. I think she felt the danger of being vulnerable and being in this position. Um, you know, she, she knew more. And I think that kind of played into her own restlessness and even into the feelings she she had when she first kind of became experienced psychosis that people were following her that there were men follow she said she told me uh two men had followed her from new york city to san francisco she had been jumping around the country and i you know i i saw the fear in her eyes but i knew it didn't make sense just to be sure, because my daughter said, well, maybe they were. I double checked. They had no file on her. It, it was in her imagination because she was active in some civil rights movements in the 60s and stuff. But that, that type of surveillance for us was over by then. So that's why I included, I mean, the, the politics were such an essential part of our family's journey, our moves around, our, our um, my parents' marriage, our need to stay together. Um, that, yeah, that's why I included it. I, I think it has a, a plays a part. It interacts with whatever's going on inside of you, the, these types of situations. You can't separate your environment and your political environment from your times. Um, 
I'm very glad you included it because it just made for a just a, a less typical kind of book. And yeah, yeah, thank you. Speaking of less typical, I I think that uh, well, I was certainly impressed by kind of the uh, sense of family involvement throughout the process that. Uh, you know, Rachel lived on the West Coast a big part of her life. You and, and other family members were in other places. Um, seems people didn't lose track of her, even though uh, you weren't uh, as as closely involved as, as you might be if she was in the same city. Yeah. Let me go back to your question, preface with, you know, why did I write the book? I lived uh, for, you know, years from the time it was, well, she was 20, you know, 30 years with this sense of guilt that I didn't do enough. Um, and that I let her, our family abandon her in a sense. Um, and so part of the book, when I said I wanted to find out what happened, um, was figuring that out. I, I needed to deal with this survivor's guilt. And I had been silent and, you know, I was so, I felt so guilty that I didn't even talk about her very much with friends. I mean, I didn't lot, well, I did, you know, sometimes I, I didn't talk about her and it kind of amounted to a lie, but usually I would say, yes, I have an older sister. She's chronically ill. And she's on the West coast, but I felt like I was covering it up and sweeping it under the rug. So I felt I had a talk. Now, why did I feel this sense that we had abandoned her? Because, um, you know, she she was rebelling against the family and made it difficult to to stay close with her. But at the same time, we we um, let uh, her go out to the Pacific Northwest with my brother. He thought he could help her, and then it. He tried really hard, but it backfired and he couldn't help her. So she was off on her own. So, you know, instead of running, getting her and taking her back, we all decided, well, you know, let her, if she's going to be in a psychiatric hospital, then might as well be out there where she's, she loves nature. She just, you know, she loved being out, you know, being in the outdoors and even in a psychiatric hospital, you you know, it's not like you're locked up all the time. You're in and out. You get to go places that she would, um, you know, that she would enjoy the Pacific. She would get more out of the Pacific Northwest. So I had very mixed feelings and very conflicted feelings um, about whether we did enough for her. But we did keep, you, you know, you're right. Many people who were that severely ill, their families break entirely with them. And um, even though I thought we should you know, looking back, we should have done more. Um, we did keep in touch. Um, uh, we were always sending care packages, money that she needed for cigarettes. Uh, she would, I, she always wanted me to send her books. Um, but there was a period of seven years that I didn't see her, you know, face to face. And finally, I had my own family. I had my career. And I just, Found, didn't find a way to visit her. My younger sister, who was not married yet at first and didn't have children, made a point to visit her annually, take her out, take her camping. She loved that. Um, my father died after she went out west, so he couldn't. And 
It was very hard for my mother, given everything between them, though I finally took her out. So there was that space and, you know, traveling wasn't, you didn't travel quite as much in those days as you do now. Um, so I finally, I finally did see her and had some regular visits with her out West and I was glad, but I, I always felt that um, it would have been better for her to be near family, be in some type of program that was near family. And because, you know, there are family events, you know, she couldn't take part in them. And there are many people today who have um, loved ones who are seriously ill and, you know, they manage to, to be in a, a same community because I think community is so important. And, you know, your first community is your family. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book to sort that out. Um, how much responsibility did I have? And um, walking that tightrope between caring for yourself and caring for your loved one is an extremely difficult process. I'm sure, and I really appreciate you sharing that with us as, as you did in the book. Um, which brings the, the question that um, she obviously had lots of psychiatric admissions. Uh, I'm sure she had a lot of outpatient treatment too. Uh, she had a lot of professionals helping her. Uh, and I'm sure many were competent, many were, uh, you know, very dedicated. Uh, you know, I, 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 they're doing very difficult work. But um, one stands out, Steve, uh, who uh, was a social worker who seemed to really make a difference in, in her life. Can you tell us a little bit about his role and why? And uh, Yeah, she would. Yeah, so when she went to the Pacific Northwest, she was in three different hospitals. They kept moving around according to their census needs. And she ended up in one that was doing a program with community outpatient treatment programs and work program. And so Rachel really wanted to work. She liked physical work, but you know, she sometimes couldn't sustain it. So um, she went on a trial basis uh, and she had a janitor janitorial job, you know, cleaning up the office. And Steve went to check on her work and he found a poem on the counter of the reception desk with her name on it. She had taken the typewriter and written it. Instead of mopping the floor, she was writing a poem. And he um, he read it and was stunned. He said, "I'm well, I'm not a poet. He showed it to a, co a colleague who was. He said, ah, this is good. Steve didn't think they would admit her in because she was you know, so disabled by then. But they read the poem at a staff meeting and he said, you could hear a pin drop. And uh, they let her in. She did work some for some years, off and on. She wrote about some poems about doing the the janitorial work. Um, but you know, her calling was poetry and writing. Uh, and Steve saw through this obviously disabled person, and he saw the poet inside her, and he subsequently she got into the program. I think he had some grant, and he. He uh, had her write up poems. He put art with it and made a little 
a, a little a booklet that he distributed and he encouraged her as, uh, for, for years. And he was just a, um, he was a bit of a rebel himself. Uh, he didn't have a traditional training, but he had worked with uh, uh, in a home for very disturbed men, I think it was. And um, he just had an attitude and he was, he had done research on this writer from years back from the region, kind of a local heroine of sorts, uh, who had very strange behavior, but was kind of a publishing phenomenon. So he understood that, you know, there are people in this world who don't fit the mold, but who have special gifts, special calling, special talents. And he just appreciated and got a big kick out of Rachel. You know, I think they they knew how to, you know, they were both very blunt and forthright and they got along. He liked her. And I talked to him. I didn't really, I had met him when I visited Rachel once, but I, I didn't really feel I could talk openly because I didn't know what to say in front of Rachel. I didn't want to talk about her, you know, but after she died, when I was interviewing people, oh, you know, he let loose about the, the fun they had. Um, and he was great. Well, it sounds like he was really the catalyst for making the, her final years, probably the ones where she had the best quality of life as as an older adult. Uh, yeah, she, she she ultimately got a little cabin and there was a little no man's land between Eugene and Springfield, Oregon. And um, they were able to place clients there. Um, it was in the woods by the Willamette River. And uh, pe uh, people from the program brought her her medication every day made sure she was eating. She was back on insulin by then, made sure she took her, her insulin. And, you know, and so it was a real community-based outpatient, you know, rather than a hospital run, um, which had, hadn't worked at the beginning. Um, but because it was a community-based and it had, you know, dedicated people, Steve went on to another job, you know, a few years later, but he kept in touch with her. And, um, you know, they they had a very wide, uh, they accepted a wide range of behaviors. Um, and you and the town there, the community was tolerant. She found her own uh, people. She found her way to a synagogue and where she was accepted. And um, yeah, accepting people, people who, Steve, the women who accepted her, when they have that type of tolerance, when they have a sense of community, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, well, maybe you're getting to uh, to what one of my final questions is, uh, you know, the, the book is just interesting in its own right, but I'm wondering if after writing it, are there some suggestions you can make for mm. those who are listening who may have family members or friends who uh, unfortunately suffer from serious mental illness. Uh, are there things that you've learned that maybe if you knew it then you would implement it uh, in your relationship with Rachel? Are there some things that you can suggest for how people handle, uh, you know, this is one of those things that uh, just like parenting and lots of other things that you don't get training for, or you don't, take college courses in generally, 
any, any outcomes that, that you can tell us uh, from, from the standpoint of being able to, to be helpful in this regard? Yeah, I think it's important to, if it's a family member, <clears throat> really look at, and now we have the internet, which we didn't have then, really look up what the treatments are, the pros and cons. There's there's a lot of different viewpoints about how helpful medication is, how harmful it is. So get yourself educated. Um, there are support organizations like National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI has chapters in most areas. They provide tremendous support and education. For people who are looking to alternatives to medication, um, there's Hearing Voices Network, not as widespread, but they're doing very important work in terms of alternatives to um, medication and using peers, people who have gone through it themselves to help people get through an emotional crisis. Um, I think it's important for family members to stick together in terms of even if you have differences of opinion to keep talking to each other, even if they're periods of estrangement, don't let it go on too long because you know this can really bring up uh, difficult things in a family. So just try to keep connected as much as you can, try to keep educated and just, and find help in walking that balance between self-care and peer care. So you don't suffer from too much guilt and you, know, you do what you can with, uh, and yet stay true to your own needs. And you know, sometimes you need professional help for that too, uh, as a parent or a sibling because that's a difficult, uh, difficult, you know, road to take. So um, yeah, it's keep informed, keep connected and keep, uh, keep your own, keep your own life in shape. Take care of yourself. This is really wonderful advice. And now where can we get the book? Oh, just about anywhere books are sold. You can go online, put in the name of the book or my name, and you'll find it. I have a website with links to us uh, online retailers. My website is my name, Deborah Kasdan, D-E-B-O-R-A-H-K-A-S-D-A-N.com. Um, if you if you have a bookstore nearby, go in. If it's not on the shelf, though, they can order it for you, so... Okay, and we'll have all this information in the show notes. Uh, oh, great. Run Bias, once more, the title of the book. So uh, yeah, we know what we're looking for when we go to these places. Oh, I just want to say the title of the book is taken from a poem of Rachel's, a, a line of one of her poetry, one of my favorite poems. It's in the book. Roll Back the World, A Sister's Memoir. Okay. Wonderful. And the place to learn more about you is at your website or are you on social? Yes. Media? Yes. Social media, too. There's links to it on the uh, website and go to um, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Uh, Deb Kasdan, I think, is my handle, D-E-B-K-A-S-D-A-N. Okay. Well, this has Love been absolutely enlightening, enjoyable, considering the topic and all that. I didn't think I'd use the word enjoyable, but I really appreciate the way you've been able to present it. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't before we quit? Uh, I can't think of anything. I think we were, uh, most people ask me and I like, you know, did, did I, 
get a sense of catharsis from writing the book. And I, I, I didn't think about catharsis when I started, but I realized afterwards that I did. And so it was a very productive, um, it was productive work for me in my life. And so do you need our definition now of leading your own life with enthusiasm? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> oh, Indeed. Really, really appreciate you spending the time with us and really appreciate the fact that you've written a really different, different book about a difficult subject that can enlighten a lot of people. And, oh, uh, thank you, Ron. Thank you. I have all the information on the show notes, in the show notes, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be heading your way, both for the book and the information on the website. Thanks again. Thanks again, Ron. Enjoy talking to you. And uh, that brings to the close another episode of Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Uh, our guest has been Deborah Kasdan, and we've learned a lot and heard a lot of information about a subject that maybe some of us may have been queasy to learn about, but uh, Deborah put it in such helpful terms and such educative terms, and we are grateful for it. So I hope that you'll re-listen to the podcast, that you'll download it, you'll tell your friends about it. Uh, Make sure that you review it, rate the podcast, and then remember to come back next week for another interesting <laughs> guest and more information about rejuvenating, how to lead your life with enthusiasm, and how to become a better version of yourself. And so in the meantime, uh, this is Dr. Ron Kaiser signing off and encouraging you to stay positive and stay safe.